Okay, so as I say, last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Today we're going to start uh, verse 14. But as we get going, I want to ask a question about the end times. When you hear that phrase, or when you think of the end times, what sort of things come to mind? What comes to mind when you hear about the end times? Yeah, Court. Around right now? What do you mean? Yeah, and how, how, how do you know that you're in the end times? Because Paul said, we know, I think it was Paul, we know we are now in the end times. Okay, so Court says, just look around. Here it is. Good. Other other thoughts when you hear the end times, what comes to mind? Yeah, Esther. Wars and rumors of war. Wars and rumors of war, yeah. Earthquakes and... Earthquakes. and whatever. The... Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> Ghostbusters, yeah. anybody? We just okay. watched that last week. There you go. The lions were in the Super That's right. <laughs> yeah. As soon as that happens, look look to the heavens. Jesus must be coming. Well, we waited the earlier times we waited for the Messiah. He has come and he will come again. Yes. This is the end time. Okay, very good. We've got some good astute theologians in here. So I mean, Christ has come already. We're awaiting his second coming, his return. So we're already in the end times. Uh, and actually, that's very much the answer that Peter's going to give in our text today, is that the end times have started already. But popularly, you know, when people think of and talk about the end times, it's usually thought of and discussed as something that's still yet to happen, right? And there's going to be all kinds of craziness that's going to happen, and, you know, Antichrist is going to show up, and all these sorts of things, Mark of the Beast. I mean, Revelation type type things. Um, incidentally, most of Revelation is to be understood as an interpretation of the present time and not as something that's yet to come. Uh, the Revelation studies for another day. But uh, yeah, so how will you know that you are in the end times? Well, according to Peter, the Holy Spirit is poured out. That's how you know. I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Uh, everybody's got a handout that wants one? We've got uh, some more on the tables there. Uh, so as we're getting into this here, I, I want to say one uh, uh, other point of introduction. Number two on your handout. The church reads the Bible backwards. The church reads the Bible backwards. What do I mean by that? That um, in light of... Christ and what he has done through his death and resurrection that causes the Christian, all Christians, but especially in the early church, to then reread their Old Testament and say, what was I missing? See, um, it's like when you watch a movie and there's a big aha moment at the end and suddenly you're like, I need to watch that again so that I can review all that came before it in light of that later knowledge. You know what I mean? The classic example of this is the movie The Sixth Sense. You guys recall this movie, The Sixth Sense, um, where he's dead already. Okay, that big spoiler what? alert there. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's ruined. <laughs> and, and then you, there's this big reveal at the end, and then it causes you to go back to the beginning of the movie. You want to see it all again. You have to watch it backwards, so to speak. With uh, the revelation of Christ, the church now reads the Bible backwards. We go back into the Old Testament and say, how was Christ 
how is Jesus already revealed in and through that? Um, actually, this is going to be my topic uh, when I speak at camp this summer. And so if that's something that interests you, come to uh, the, the lectures at camp this summer. You're always welcome and encouraged to come, right, Chip? Indeed. Yes, it'd be great. <laughs> um, but uh, we see it really in practice throughout the book of Acts, and in particular in Paul's or in Peter's sermon today. And the, the warrant for it, just in terms of kind of proof texts, you've got several places you could go to, but you think of Luke chapter 24, when Jesus, right after on the day of his resurrection, he's walking with the, the guys on the way to, uh, on the Emmaus Road, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets and says, in all the scriptures, and as you guys know, when it says all the scriptures right there, it's talking about what? What we call the Old Testament, right? The Gospels are in the process of being written as well as Paul's letters. All of the Old Testament scriptures, the prophets, Moses, meaning the first five books, and the writings, in all of those places, Christ is present and revealed. So that's what we're really going to see in Peter's sermon here, is a, a way of interpreting and understanding the Old Testament as already prefiguring the coming of Christ, anticipating his arrival. Yes? Right, good question. So Becky's question is, who picked what belonged to the Old Testament scriptures? What was part of what we call the canon of the Old Testament? We often, well not often, but I mean, we'll have more conversations about the New Testament books, which came in. The Old Testament, the process of the Old Testament canon, it's a little bit less clear. It wasn't uh, the sort of thing where there was one council and a group of people selected it. Um, over time, they more or less were sifted together. There were these other apocryphal books that, that we know about, um, but by and large, those were not included as part of the, the canon of the Old Testament. Um, but specifically, who chose them and when? Um, I think it's sort of like the Apostles' Creed. We don't know who exactly did it. It kind of um, developed over time until finally settling. So, yeah, Carla. Was it actually set at the time? Yes. Okay. Yeah, by, by the time of Jesus, it was, it was basically set. Um, there were still some outliers, books like um, the book of Esther, for example, which doesn't even rec um, uh, mention the, the name of the Lord. And uh, so you've got a couple of those, just like in the New Testament. There are uh, a few books that were referred to as anti-legomenon, or spoken against books. And this includes Revelation, the letter to James, um, Jude, and um, what? Like Second Peter and Second and Third John. Uh, these were letters that were, some people said, you know, I'm not sure that these should be in the New Testament. Ultimately, you know, they, they stayed in there, but they were part of, um, more on the fringe of the, of the scripture in that way. So um, that's uh, for a whole other day too, I think. So let's then get into our passage, Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 14. So we've just left off. The people were mocking them and said, they're filled with new wine, all right? They think these guys are a little bit tipsy. But Peter, verse 14, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. All right. Peter, again, the book of Acts utilizes more humor than any other book in the New Testament. And I think this is meant to be funny. Peter's like, hey, it's only 9 o'clock. We wouldn't be drunk yet for at least a couple more hours. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, I'm getting all my bad accents out of my system today, right? Good. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, Peter, Peter is. I think he's, he's kind of breaking the ice a little bit and saying, no, guys, that's not it. There's more going on here. And he's going to go on and preach. Now, this is something that's worth commenting upon here. And number three on your, your handout, the design of Acts reminds us that faith comes by hearing. From Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. We see this um, realized in the life of the early church as there are multiple sermons throughout the book. From Peter and from Paul, we see this preaching both to Jews and to Gentiles. And um, the author, uh, theologian C.H. Dodd, gives a basic structure to the preaching in the book of Acts. This doesn't always hold true, but this is the basic structure. First, it starts with a, a proclamation that the coming of God's kingdom is at hand. It's happened right here and now through the resurrection of Christ and the, the coming of the Spirit. That's the second part. It's taken place in and through Jesus Thirdly, Jesus is exalted at God's right hand by way of the resurrection. Now he is in the place of power and authority. Fourthly, the Spirit is the sign of Christ's present power and glory. Christ continues to reign and rule over his church through the Spirit active among believers. Fifth, this age will reach its consummation with Jesus' return. So we're looking forward to his coming again when he will usher in the new creation in full. And then finally, sixth, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, and salvation are received by faith and through the gift of holy baptism. So you have this basic pattern and structure throughout the book of Acts with these sermons that are um, explicating the great acts of God, saying this is what the Lord is up to. It varies some depending on the context, who it's being addressed to, but this is the basic, basic idea. Okay. Yeah, Chip. Just briefly, because this isn't the point of your talk, but when do you say the coming of the kingdom? What is the kingdom? Good. So the, when we talk about the kingdom of God, um, we tend to think of that more in a, a static sort of way, as a geographical kind of place. The kingdom of Thailand, or the, king, you know, the United Kingdom, this sort of thing. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's a more dynamic or active concept. So some people say it's better translated as the reign and rule of God. God's kingdom is wherever he is reigning and ruling as king. So it's not primarily a, a geographical kind of concept. It's more a, a, a concept based on where is God's power at work. And according to the Gospels, that kingdom has come in and through Jesus Christ. So where Jesus is reigning and ruling, there's the kingdom of God where God is doing kingdom things, where his power um, and grace are at work in people. This is, we have in the, the catechism, you know, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is um, where God is ruling in our hearts, where we live lives um, in obedience to his word. So um, that's kind of a, just a capsule of it. It's not that spatial, geographical kind of thing. It's about God's reigning and ruling. So are other places where God is not reigning and ruling? Well, yeah, no, this is a good question. So um, are there places where God is not reigning and ruling? And we tend to make a distinction in terms of um, his reign of 
of glory and his reign of grace and his reign of, of power. This is like more theological inside baseball than maybe you guys care for. But there's uh, the way that God rules over all creation um, where he is the one who is ordering and upholding all things. But when we are talking here more narrowly about the reign and rule of Christ, it's that kingdom of grace. So where he is reigning and ruling in grace through the forgiveness of sins, through power of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, um, we'll see um, in the book of Acts uh, characters who are outside of the people of God. But still, God is reigning over them as king. Uh, Paul really brings this out in his sermon in Acts chapter 17. It's like, look, whether or not you guys recognize it or acknowledge it, God is the source of all life. He is the creator. By virtue of that, he is the king. He's the one who rules over all creation. Um, but more narrowly, now Christ has come um, bringing this reign and rule of God's grace into the lives of, of human people so that we're able to experience and participate in that reign and rule. So it's sort of a, a both and in that way. Yeah. Good. Okay, so Peter stands up to preach, as will often happen in the book of Acts. And what does he preach? Let's go on. <clears throat> this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, he says. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <clears throat> okay, there's two key things uh, that call to Peter's mind. Now, remember, he doesn't just have a, a copy of the Bible. He doesn't have a Gideon Bible in his pocket that he can just pull out and say, let me look up a good text real quick. I'll just check my concordance, say, you know, what's something that I will be appropriate for this occasion? He's working from his memory. And what's a text that comes to mind as, as he is thinking through what's appropriate and what really brings to light what has just happened here? I think there's two things in particular that bring Peter to this passage from Joel. What's the first one, the most obvious one? It's there in the, that verse 17. Yeah, yeah. Pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Yes. So the, the first one is the Spirit. Okay. So he recognizes, okay, this is what's happened here, the outpouring of the Spirit, and this is ushering in the, the end times promise. In the last days, it says, it shall be that God will pour out his Spirit. Okay. So that's the first main thing. What's the second thing that you know, comes to, to Peter's mind here? I'll give you a hint. It connects with the sermon today as well. Nothing about Simeon specifically. But. Mm, hearing some mumbling. Well, there, oh, there is that. The old men dreaming dreams. And you have you know, Simeon as the old man. That's true. But think of uh, you know, the promise that was made or the, and that we sing in Simeon's song, a light to the goyim, right? To the Gentiles and glory for his people Israel. That this is for all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. So um, those two those two things, the all flesh or the everybody who calls on the name of the Lord without distinction of um, whether they were Jew or Gentile, now all can be gathered into God's chosen people, the, the family of God. See, I think those two features are what especially call to Peter's mind this text from, uh, from Joel. And this is hugely significant because in the Old Testament, not, every, not all of God's people are said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there. He's, he's invoked. He's called upon. We see his presence. But who, who are some of the people who have the Spirit? Who do we hear about in the Old Testament that they, they have the Spirit? Samuel. Okay, and Samuel is a what? Prophet. A prophet. Okay, so one group of people are the prophets. The prophets are said to be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. Samuel, um, Samuel would be one, but I mean, you could go up and down the line. Prophets are anointed ones. In fact, they are called, that, I mean, Mashiach, that you really got to get the last part. The Mashiach. <laughs> means the anointed one. It's used of the prophets also. So, okay, so that's one class. What's the other group of people? Yeah. Almost all the judges. Okay, judges. And I would kind of almost put these as a, uh, a subgroup under all of the come before them. Who are the judges the, the forerunners of, in a way? The kings. The kings, right? So the, the judges slash kings would be the other big group. Yeah, yeah. Does that include the bad kings? Does that include the bad kings? Well, think of this. Who was the first king? Saul, right? And does Saul have the Holy Spirit or not? He did. He does. He did, right? Um, he does. Now, here's the thing. And we, um, you know, David prays this in Psalm 51. We sing it in the, uh, the TLH setting of, of the liturgy. Um, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And it's like, Back up there for a second. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Um, it was a gift that, could, that was given and that could be taken back. Um, so we see that among the kings. Now I'm trying to think in terms of subsequent kings after Samuel, um, to what extent does it explicitly say that they are anointed? Uh, some of them, off the top of my head, I think it makes it clearer than others, like Josiah. But in terms of even the bad kings, I mean, the, what I can say historically is that each of the kings would have been anointed. This, you know, um, like in Psalm 133, when it says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the beard running down on the, the beard of Aaron. Which, by the way, brings up the third class, which is running down on the, the garment of his robes. And... Uh, they would be anointing the oil. We see it with Samuel and with David, right? That anointing of the king that made them the forerunner of the king. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, the, the spirit is present there, but does it get revoked and called back? It sure seems to be the case. I mean, we know it was the case with Saul, and presumably it was with other kings as well. Yeah, Carla. I think it's important, too, in verse 18, that my servants, both men and women. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is, this is kind of the big thing, is that now what all of these guys, these, these were like the superstars of the Old Testament, right? It was just the elite class of God's especially set-aside servants, priests, kings, prophets. Um, there's this interesting little vignette from Numbers, 20, or Numbers 11. I, Numbers, 
Yeah, Numbers 11. You got it at the bottom of page 1 in your handout. It says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. Such an interesting thought. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. There's got to be a joke in there somewhere, right? Um, And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them! But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Um, the movement then in the, in the New Testament is the fulfillment of Moses' long-awaited hope that there would be a day when all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit. And now that has been fulfilled in the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. It's no longer just for a special elite class of believers, but it belongs to all those who have been called into the family of faith. Question. Yeah. 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 So, and we'll, and we'll see this elsewhere through the book of Acts too, and it comes up in in First Corinthians too. So when we think of when we think of prophesying, um, there's two general definitions of it. Is this too squeaky? Or just squeaky enough? Okay. Appropriate amount of squeak. Yeah, that's right. Get your attention. Okay. So there's. There's two general um, actions that we see with prophets. The first one is foretelling. And this is what we most commonly associate with prophets, especially Old Testament prophets. Foretelling means that you are telling what's going to happen before it happens. Okay? You're the, the seers, as they're also called in the Old Testament. The ones that are looking ahead to the future and seeing here's what is to come and then relating that to the people. The other office or aspect of prophets is what you call forth-telling. In other words, telling forth the truth about God and his ways to people right now, which maybe has implications for the future, but is not specifically predicting the future. It'd be like witnessing. It'd be like witnessing, exactly. So basically, prophesying in the second sense is a rough synonym for witness. And as we said last week, this is... I mean, uh, in the book of Acts in particular, really the distinguishing march, mark of the early church, this witness to the gospel. And so this witnessing is done by all of God's people. It's not um, uh, relegated to just a particular group, but all of the believers are called upon to bear witness to the works of God in Christ. And this idea, this is also kind of connects to the prophesying, comes up again in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, and that's... It, best for us to understand it in that second sense. We will see in Acts a foreteller as well, the interesting character of Agabus, um, which not popular on the Social Security list of uh, baby names, but um, maybe it will be after we get there. Yeah, Chip. Where does the uh, you're all going to hell speech come in? They 
there as far as because a lot of prophets are like telling people to repent and they're horrible and you know sackcloth and ashes and that kind of stuff is that yeah that would be part of the fourth telling yeah for sure I mean truth telling yeah truth telling yeah right and I think you know sometimes you'll hear people um, say this like oh that that preaching was really prophetic um, I think in most cases when they say that they're not talking about it in the foretelling way they're talking about it in the fourth telling way like it's you know telling it how it is sort of thing and uh, so we gotta be dangerous or we gotta be careful with that because it is it is dangerous because sometimes folks will call prophetic speech what they want to hear <laughs> like yeah you tell those guys over there how it is see that's prophetic but when it comes to our hearts then it's like well, wait a second here. You know, that's how prophets got themselves in trouble again and again. In the Old Testament is because they're uh, not just their foretelling, but their foretelling um, ran up against what folks really wanted to wanted to hear. So, good. Okay. So there, there is this outpouring of the Spirit, this gift to all of God's people, this end times gift that's for all of them: young, old, men, women, Jew, Gentile. All of us are gathered into the family of God. I should note, too, that's speaking principally about the vertical relationship with the Lord. Um, and the extent to which it also has ramifications on the horizontal relationships, how God's people live in the world among one another, is still to be seen in some ways within the story of Acts. But this is primarily talking about now, before God, we are redeemed, forgiven, filled with the Holy Spirit without respect to class or anything, okay? We're all united in Christ through the Spirit. All right, let's go on to verse, verses 22. Peter continues after that quote. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Pause there for just a second. Talk about you know, reading backwards. Peter is alluding to a certain very significant action in the Old Testament when he talks about how Jesus did mighty works and wonders and signs. Does that call to mind any particular um, section or story in the OT for you guys? Yeah, Ann. Uh, yes. Yes. The plagues of Egypt, um, which... When, when we hear plagues, we immediately think that's you know negative. That's that's really bad, um, and there was plenty of badness to it. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, frogs coming into your bed. No thanks. Um, but fundamentally, those were signs and wonders for God to demonstrate who He is as the God over all creation, the one who reigns and rules over all creation, including Egypt. Guess what, Pharaoh? You are not the the king. Uh, the Lord Yahweh is the king. And so it's, it's alluding back to that and in a way kind of connecting Jesus with Moses there. Okay, so he did works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Pause there again. There's some interesting questions to be raised here, and it actually goes to the Exodus as well. So it says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay? 
God is in charge of all of this. There's never a point where God is taken aback or surprised by what was happening in the life and, and ministry and death of our Lord Jesus. Um, and so that it gets you into those questions of like predestination and you know, God's um, omnipotence, his sovereignty. So then you have the next line, though. It says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And as we go on, it'll be very clear that Peter does not have any problem calling these guys out for their guilt, their responsibility in the death of Christ, in his crucifixion. How do those two things square? Like, wait a second, which is it? Is God in charge of all of this? Is he the one who is orchestrating everything that happens? Or is it the, the free will, the sinful will of humans that is, is doing it? What's the right answer there? Yeah, yeah, right? I mean, this, this as is so often the case, when we talk about um, election and these challenges of, of free will and God's omnipotence and um, his foreordaining, his predestining and, and planning everything, from the biblical perspective, both of those things are upheld in a way that we can't reconcile in our human minds. The fact that Peter just lays it out there and doesn't even feel a need to kind of, like, Peter, could you unpack that for us a little bit? That'd be really helpful. Um, but instead just asserts them both. This is where, as Christians, um, we have to be willing to submit ourselves to the biblical witness and confess both of those things without necessarily knowing how they fit together. See what I mean? Um, we'd love to be able to just tally it all up and, and give a, a nice, clear definition. Well, God is responsible for, you know, 70% and humans for 30% or you know, whatever it might be. Scriptures don't give us that. They give us instead, yeah, people are responsible. Yeah, God is planning it all. He's the one working through it. So that's what we get here, Peter, in just these simple lines. Thank you. Jesus loves us, you know. This is really what we want to go back to when you find yourself reading the scripture like, I do not know what to make of this. Jesus loves us, you know. The Bible tells me so. Let's hang our hat on that. But I think Peter is also uh, alluding to another story here when he talks about the definite plan, the will, the counsel of God. And that story is the story of Joseph from the OT. Um, and we mentioned uh, last week or two weeks ago, why do they need to have um, this 12? And uh, you know, it goes back to the time of, of Joseph and the 12 sons of Israel and you know, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, there's this powerful moment at the end, the culmination of that story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, where it says this, it's on, on your handout on page two. <clears throat> when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Um, the Greek text, uh, the Septuagint text of this passage from Genesis 50 is very similar to what Peter has here when he talks about the definite knowledge and foreknowledge and plan of God. Similar with the underlined verse there, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Uh, or otherwise put, God's definite plan was for good. Okay, um, To give a different translation to it there. And I think that what might be going on here is Peter kind of alluding to that story where here you have um, the innocent Joseph. I mean, let the hearer understand. He's still sinful. He still um, has issues. But, you know, he's, he's the, the victim in that story, right? Um, but now he's vindicated by God. And he is really throughout that story. And then especially here at the end. With Christ, you have something similar happening, right? I mean, even more so. Here he is, the true blameless victim who has been offered up by the hands of ruthless men. They meant it for evil, but guess what? God meant it for good. I think it's Peter's way of saying the, the cross, all of this that happened was not outside of God's purposes, but in fact was in keeping with his plan all along. Uh, again, it raises difficult questions for us in terms of how this all fits together with with human will and responsibility, but as far as Peter is concerned and elsewhere in the scriptures, they have no problem holding both of those things in tension. All right, now I just said a, a lot there in terms of God's will and all that kind of stuff. Let me pause for, for questions or comments or, or push back about that. So the, the big idea is God has this divine economy, not in the sense of you know, dollars and cents, but in the sense of his plan and purpose. Um, again, Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10 says, uh, at the bottom, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So the mystery of his will, insofar as God has revealed it to us, made known to us what we need to know, it's revealed in Christ, the one in whom all things are united. Good. All right. So we're on page three now on, on the handout number six. Let's continue reading through Peter's sermon. Verse 25, he goes back to the Old Testament. For David says concerning him, concerning the Messiah, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. All right, you read that psalm. Does it say anything about Jesus in there? On first read, it doesn't, does it? And you're like, I don't really see anything about the Messiah in there. But if, as you look deeper, where could you see Jesus? What, what makes Peter think of this psalm, Psalm 16? He's at my right hand. Okay, I saw the Lord always before me at my right hand. Okay, um, so here thinking of not 
David's right hand, but God's right hand. Good. What else? Yeah, yeah. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Yeah, you will not let your Holy One see decay or see corruption. So who is that Holy One? I mean, when David prays it initially, he's probably thinking of himself, right? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. But now Peter, reading backwards, is able to see, oh, David's saying more than maybe he even realized or recognized. And I think it's okay for us to say that, that um, when it comes to David, when it comes to the other prophets, that because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of the Bible, they're able to say even more than they knew. We don't have to necessarily think, oh, David you know, knew exactly what he was you know, saying. Um, it could have been the case, but it could just as well have been the case. The Spirit is speaking this so that it has this kind of multivalence. It has this double level there of both speaking for himself, but also anticipating the Christ, the Holy One. Yeah, Anne. When do you think Peter had the opportunity to study scriptures? Good question. What, so uh, Anne says, when, when did Peter have the opportunity to, to study the scriptures? Weekends, probably. Weekends. Weekends <laughs> evening, during his lunch well, break. He probably had to memorize the Torah in his youth. Exactly. So... Um, so he was, he was a, these are the, these are the flunkies, right? So, uh, he was a fisherman. He, he would have been a flunky, as you say, although we need good fishermen or we don't eat, right? Um, but no, um, by the way, did you fall through the water ice fishing? We did not. Okay, good. Uh, you're here. So that's good. Um, so all of, uh, pious Jewish children would have been taught and learned scripture and memorized scripture up until the age when they were probably around 14, 15. So after, after their uh, bar mitzvah, I mean, this is more of a, a modern practice, the way that it's, it's practiced today. But I mean, son of the commandment, when you kind of come of age, then it's the time where you would sort of split off. Are you going to continue studying to become a rabbi or are you going to go into a, you know, a trade or... Learn what you're going to do, fishing, what have you. Tecton, like Jesus, carpenter. Um, but he would have learned scripture. I mean, he would have been weaned on it. So, yeah, Matt. Isn't it possible, too, that when Jesus was ministering with them and they are following him, that he's teaching them this? Yes, I mean, exactly. And, so, and that's the other side of it, too, is Jesus is presumably teaching them from the scriptures all along the way. What he did in, um, with the Emmaus road walkers I'm, I'm inclined to think that he was doing that along the way as well and t showing them, telling them, hey, these are, the, these are the texts that point to me. You see how it's there all along. Yeah, I don't think Peter just suddenly wakes up one day and it's like, oh, wait a second. I think that Jesus has been teaching him, showing him this. We think again of those 40 days as well um, between Christ's resurrection and his ascension when he's talking about the kingdom of God. Yeah, I absolutely think he's, he's sharing with them. So, uh, both, both sides of that. Sure. So here is uh, Peter going back to that promise that the Holy One shall not see decay. This is what Jesus came to do, to destroy death. And we actually heard this um, reading from Hebrews 2 in our uh, uh, worship today. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay. 
Um, therefore, as Peter says from Psalm 16, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And I just thought this was neat to share it with you. I came across this uh, a creed from the Maasai people in, I believe, in Kenya, in Africa. It's a modern 20th century creed where uh, kind of a paraphrase of the creed. And they say, he lay buried in the grave, but the hyenas did not touch him. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. Isn't that interesting? He did not let the Holy One see corruption. The hyenas didn't get to him. Uh, but he rose from the dead. All right. So now Peter has really laid this out. He's given these core key texts from uh, the prophet Joel, from David in Psalm 16. And now he's going to turn and really um, drive the, uh, the screws into, into his listeners. It says, verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Okay, so number seven on your handout, I say, St. Peter's pragmatic preaching demonstrates the necessity of the Trinitarian rescue. Pastor, can you get a little more? Okay. But his pragmatic preaching, by which I mean, Peter's just like, I'm, the tomb of David was a pilgrimage site for the Israelites. They went to go see, here's where David was buried. And so he's pointing out to them, hey, you guys believe Psalm 16, right? You will not let your Holy One see corruption? Well, you all know that David's dead. You can go over here. You can, you know, you can do the little scratchy thing where you get the, the chalk and put it on your paper and you know, on his tombstone. And you can go home because he's already dead. And so P Peter's just laying out what would have been a perfectly obvious point to all of his hearers. Therefore, there must be another one about whom David is speaking. And that other one is Christ Jesus, right? He is the one who is the fulfillment of that promise. And also the, the promise of 2 Samuel 7. And Peter's alluding to this, where God says to, uh, to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Isn't that interesting? Shall, I shall be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When we think of who Christ is as the son of God, and the, the promise of the Mashiach, the Messiah. Uh, so what Peter says, who do people say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, This is who Jesus is. So Peter's demonstrating he, he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to rescue us. And I, I mentioned there about the Trinitarian rescue. I just want to underscore for you verse 33. And if you have a, uh, if you're reading from, from your own Bible, you might, I do this in uh, my Bible sometimes. I do one of these three circle things, um, just as an icon of a recognition of where the Trinity shows up in the scriptures. Because, you know, people will say, oh, the Trinity, the, the word doesn't show up in the New Testament. You Christians are 
are making that up. Well, no, we coined the word Trinity, but it's everywhere present. And notice verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that is, God the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All three persons of the Trinity active and at work there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all conspiring together for the salvation of, of God's creation. So, okay, you with me? We've got a, a little bit more here in uh, Peter's sermon. He goes on to say, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Whew. Wow. Uh, this is some intense stuff here. And Peter is saying, number eight at the bottom of, of your handout there, every sinner is complicit in the death of Jesus. While you and I were not literally there responsible for putting him on the cross, we need to hear Peter's word for us that every one of us is complicit in his death because it is our sin that put him there. See, um, You think of, again, David's words from Psalm 51. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When we sin, we sin against other people, sure. But ultimately, every sin has a Godward thrust. It's against God. Um, and again, famous words from, from Paul in his letter to Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, whom I am chief. Uh, there's a sense in which every single one of us needs to be able to say that for ourselves, right? And not just say, well, you know, Paul was the chief of sinners. I'm more the uh, papoose of sinners. No. Um, that's all of us, chief of sinners. All of us have that complicity in the death of Christ. But for that very reason as well, all of us are gathered into God's forgiving work. Yes, he died for us and was raised for us as well. All right, last part, and we'll have to pick up with this next week. I'll just say a couple words here, and we can continue the, the conversation next week because um, we actually, I think I'll, I'll do that. I'll just stop right here with verse 36 as we're, uh, uh, our time is up, and we'll pick up next week with verse 37 and go to the, the end of the chapter there. So a lot to cover there. Sorry if I was going a little bit quick, but if you have questions, things that you want to discuss more next week, we can continue taking it up and go in, in greater depth. But thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. God bless.